0: because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Joining me as usual are Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hey, Alex. And Stefan Henna in Germany. Hello. Hey there. Okay, I've looked at your topics in advance and they all look interesting and I wanna start with a topic of my own, which is something that I've talked about a bunch, but needs to be talked about more, and I have a slightly new perspective on it. And this is has to do with the cost of unreliable fuels, so namely solar and wind. I was reading the energy news today, and as so often happens, I saw a quote-unquote report about, oh, solar and wind are now cheaper than everything else, and they show you these graphs. This happened to be Axios, which we've talked about uh, a few times, which is considered a good news source. And it's just striking to me how wrong this is, where they're say they're saying basically, energy costs this amount per kilowatt hour, which is just a unit of energy. You can think of it as a certain amount of calories because calories can be a good way to think of energy. And they're just saying, well, this costs less than this other thing. And in particular, they were and they were trying to be really scientific because they were talking about, Oh, the lifetime cost. So we're gonna look at every little variable in it. We're gonna look at what seems to be the full context and look, it was something like nuclear was three times more than solar. And you think, oh wow, that's good. And then I think near the end of this, or this will occasionally ha- maybe it was another report I was actually reading yesterday, which was some pretty authoritative report. And they just say, Oh, by the way, it's not reliable. And then the end and the article um ends. And this is just so wrong because. What we need in the world is abundant, reliable energy. That's the the whole game is that we are weak animals. We need machines to do a lot of work for us. And so we need to find sources of abundant, reliable energy that we can afford a lot of. That's the whole game is how do you produce abundant, reliable energy with relatively few resources so that a lot of people can afford it? So if you can't produce reliable energy, if you produce it unreliably, you're not playing the same game. To measure it, uh, to to talk about the cost of unreliable energy is not a useful kind of thing. But because this unreliable energy source takes place usually on an electric grid where it it acts as basically a parasite on reliable um, fuels, then you can do all sorts of accounting gimmicks and make it seem like oh no it's actually it's actually really cheap and i'm thinking about okay how do we combat this what are other ways to combat this and because you just hear all the time i saw a, a friend of the programs a friend of ours named david blumberg he sent me an article or it was a facebook post by guy kawasaki and guy kawasaki is a guy who's had uh, some kind of interaction with steve jobs a smart guy in different ways but just posts about oh yeah, the cost of renewables and solar and wind, and I think it was probably solar in particular, are going down and just et cetera, et cetera. So we don't need to worry about banning fossil fuels because we've got these superior alternatives that are way cheaper and getting ever cheaper all the time. And I'm just trying to think, okay, how do I I counter this? And so here's an idea that I have, and I'm, I'm interested in other people's ideas about Uh, not just you guys, but also listeners to the show, about how do you quickly convey that the price, that the alleged price, uh, which is itself manipulated, of unreliable energy has nothing to do with the price of reliable energy. And I thought, well, one way to think of it is that there's something wrong with the way we're measuring price right now, because the way we're measuring price, even if we try to do it in the full context is we're measuring the price per unit of energy produced so you say well this is the price of solar per kilowatt hour and part of the reason you do this is because there's this fallacious way of measuring cost which is that that uses the term capacity which says okay it with with you know the capacity of an unreliable um, energy source, the capacity number is is always misleading because if it says it's 100 megawatts of solar, that means this can generate 100 megawatts at the perfect point of brightness and cloudlessness, and then zero megawatts when it's dark and some much lower, you know, some much lower number number than 100, even when there is light. So when you say it has a capacity of 100 megawatts, that's incredibly misleading. And so then justifiably, people say, well, don't measure it in terms of this capacity. Measure it in terms of how much energy does it actually produce. And versus say, nuclear, where if you say that has one hundred megawatt capacity, that may mean in practice it can produce ninety megawatts all the time. But notice that when so there's a legitimacy in saying, hey, let's look at at the energy, you know the energy the amount of energy produced, not the power rating, which you can think of as as the capacity. But, the power rating captures something really important, which is the need for abundant, reliable power, this power on demand. So when we, when we stop talking about capacity or even when we talk about capacity in a negative way because it's so abused, we, we miss this thing, which is that we really do need the capacity for abundant, reliable power. We need it all the time. So what to do about this? Well, I think one way to think of it with solar is to ask the question, not how much do kilowatts of kilowatt hours of solar units of energy of solar cost on today's grid where they're parasites, because that's not what we're really interested in. And that's super hard to account for. Anyway, here's my, the question I would ask is, what is the cost of self-sufficient solar? So what is the cost of self-sufficient solar? And, and by that, I mean a plant just that, just like a natural gas plant or a nuclear plant or a coal plant can produce abundant, reliable power. I want to know the cost per unit of energy or per megawatt or however you want to do it for self-sufficient solar. And that's what we should be, That's this is an idea at least, that's what we should be looking for. We should be asked when these things come up, ask, no, I want to know the price of self-sufficient solar. And then what's going to come up? Well, unfortunately, there is zero self-sufficient solar in the world in terms of, any kind of industrial city and so we don't know but that is not a good sign and if and to get it a sign i think we should and and we will come up with our own calculations of here's what self sufficient solar currently costs under certain circumstances and it's tricky to to even work that out because you have to figure out how much solar Uh, capacity in the distorted sense do you need to build out in order to get some lower number of capacity? But essentially, if you think of it as 100 megawatts of solar, it's schematically something like in order to have that reliably, you would need, let's say, in a sunny place, 400 megawatts of solar panels plus a certain, you know, some very high amount of battery reserve. And then the question is, what is that? And I would love to know that figure. And I will know that figure because we're going to research it in the next week or two. And then that's going to be a good figure. What is the cost of self-sufficient solar? And then I think what people will see is, oh, wow, this is 10 or 100 times more expensive than other things. And then the other thing I would ask for is, what is the cost of fossil-free self-sufficient solar? Because all of the the hypothetical self-sufficient solar is taking advantage of the very low prices of fossil fuel-based energy to build it at every stage. But what if it had to use uh, only solar-derived things? And that would be a really interesting kind of value chain, and that would be difficult to trace. But I think we should, maybe even that, with that one, we can try. And then what I want to do is, I, I then let's have the solar files respond and say like have them come up with something because right now there is no calculation that I have ever seen for self-sufficient solar and there's certainly no calculation for fossil-free self-sufficient solar and yet that's what they're telling us to rely upon so let's let's not just let people focus on uh the like the cost of parasitical solar uh, which is just inherently is not really a useful thing and inherently involves all sorts of all sorts of accounting gimmicks. Let's talk about this the cost of self-sufficient solar. So Don or Stefan, any thoughts
0: on that? I have one, which is I would even give them the benefit of the doubt and let them have solar plus wind uh, and in part because, like, for example, a self-sufficient coal plant versus a coal plant that has you know peak power from gas, you know, would be a preferable solution. So, You know, they can have all the unreliables they want, I think, for the sake of that calculation.
1: Yeah, self sufficient solar plus wind doesn't quite have the same ring, doesn't have the same alliterative ring to it. But uh, yeah, sure. I mean, you can have like self sufficient uh, solar or self sufficient solar and wind or self sufficient unreliables. Stefan, any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I think a a typical uh, argument that proponents of wind and solar will have is. Okay. Reliability is a, is a system property. It's not just you look at this one solar panel. But again, the proposals on the table are 100% renewable or close to that, right? So we really need to find out like what's the on-demand system only consisting of solar and wind looking like.
1: Yeah, and that's that's a starting point. And then you can make the argument, well, we don't need too much self-sufficient solar. We only need, you know, 80% of it to be self-sufficient, and then this percent can be unreliable. That's fine. But the starting point should be you need to explain what would it cost for you to do the job that's currently being done, versus what what does it take for you to just be a parasite and then take credit for a whole bunch of uh, uh, things. One other perspective on this. Is just that when I, I think about why do I do the work that I do, why do we do this show and other work that we do, a, a lot it's a really important job in a society for people to understand the key technologies in that society. And what we have going on with fossil fuel energy or hydrocarbon is more technically right, energy technology is that there's just a complete misunderstanding of that technology. And one of the biggest misunderstandings is the lack of understanding of its superior capacity to produce abundant, reliable energy for billions of people. And that is just that is something that is is unique. Now, nuclear has a lot of potential to do that, um, although it's, it's farther away in terms of being able to do it in every form that we need it. But it's really important that the capacity to produce abundant, reliable energy for billions of people is an incredibly difficult feat. And really only one technology has pulled off that feat. And then the ones we're talking about are some of the farthest away from being able to pull off that feat. And one perspective we can think of it from is is the perspective of efficiency or resource efficiency. Really, the challenge is you want people to be able to afford abundant, reliable energy. And therefore, you need to figure out a way to produce abundant, reliable energy with relatively few resources, particularly for people who have relatively few resources. And that's the whole thing. How do you produce abundant, reliable energy uh, in a very resource-efficient manner? And when you deal with an unreliable fuel input, then you set up a process that at least by every known mechanism right now is incredibly resource-inefficient. And right now, it it hides that by parasiting on resource-efficient technologies like fossil fuels and nuclear, but it itself is incredibly resource-inefficient. And so to ask for what's the price of self-sufficient solar, that can help expose the incredible resource-inefficiency of the solar process, of the wind process. And if we can do that, then people will have much more of an appreciation of the good forms of energy and why they're good and and under and be suspicious when other forms of energy just claim, oh, we can do that as easily because they know, oh, that's actually really hard to produce abundant, reliable energy with very few resources. And then we should really appreciate the industries and the technologies that can do that. Now, there are other aspects of understanding uh, an energy technology because we need to look at the byproducts, which is something I talked about in, I believe, last week's episode. But number one thing you need to understand about energy technologies is how resource efficient are they at producing abundant, reliable energy. And if you get that point, it totally changes one's perception of hydrocarbons because then hydrocarbons become, oh my gosh, this is such an amazing technology in our civilization. And it's really tragically misunderstood. And that's one huge reason why I think our work is really important and the work we do with clients is really important because the most important technology in our civilization is completely misunderstood. And it's misunderstood ultimately, as we've discussed before, because there's the wrong framework for understanding any technology, including we don't have... We're not clear that the goal of technology should be human flourishing, and we're not clear that we need to look at the full capacity of a technology, not just look at the negatives if we're predisposed against it. And there, and there are a lot of other methods involved in how do we understand the full impact or the full capacity of a technology. But um, one, this one key point that I'm stressing today is just one. Key aspect of really the key aspect of an energy technology's capacities is how resource efficient is it at producing abundant, reliable energy? Don, what is your first story today?
0: Sure. So, as we are uh, recording this, President Trump is getting ready to announce two executive orders that are aimed at speeding up pipeline and other energy pro- uh, projects and we're still waiting on the details that's not public yet but the basic idea is to streamline the permitting pro- process and really open up the ability to to create transport for natural gas and oil as well and the i mean the main thing that's giving rise to this concern is despite the fact that you know we've seen like nationwide natural gas prices decline across a lot of the country there's been a Shortage of pipeline capacity in New England. And so we talked about this a few weeks ago the way that uh, because of New York barring the building of pipelines through the state, um, New England has seen higher prices and even in some places just a complete lack of supply of natural gas. And I mean, I think this is a welcome development. We'll see what the details are. But as part of the context, I was. Uh, struck by there's a new working paper where the the authors try to quantify the impact of higher energy costs on winter deaths, and so the title of the paper is "Inexpensive Heating Reduces Winter Mortality." So that gives you an indication of what their conclusion is. But basically, they say that you we can identify that higher heating prices in the winter do increase mortality, and the way they get to this conclusion is the fact that. Um, There are very different, there are very big differences between different counties across the country in terms of whether they get their heat from electricity or from natural gas. And so you're able to compare the impact of the dramatic decline in natural gas prices over the last decade um, and get some sense of what the causality is of lower prices and people living. And so their conclusion is that shale gas has driven a price decline leading to 11,000 fewer wintertime deaths per year now take that exact figure with a grain of salt and the usual caveats but uh, the the general point I think is like unquestionable and so wh- what that really means is that barring these pipeline projects like New York is doing is, really preventing us from saving thousands and perhaps many more than that lives.
1: Yeah. I mean, one, one perspective is we, we talk about climate change all the time and really what they're causing it by with lack of energy, you get negative indoor climate change because what we, what we create through having a lot of energy is we create indoor climate stability as That as we we give ourselves a range of temperatures that we're very comfortable with, the more the more energy uh, we have, the more capability we have to control our indoor climate, which is the climate that most of us live in. 22 plus hours a day. I'm ironically to some people I probably spend more time outside than just about uh, anybody. So for me, it might you know might be 20 hours a day, but still a lot of time. Inside, and I can only do that because I live in a a, you know uniquely nice and warm outdoor climate. So you've got indoor like this is the you know lack of energy causes truly destructive indoor climate change due to poverty because we're changing from the unnaturally safe and stable indoor climate that we create to the naturally uh, unstable and dangerous climate that nature gives us that makes its way indoors very easily if we do not have a lot of energy so i'm always just trying to give a humanistic perspective on everything including climate whereas we're we're often taught to think of climate as just this this external perfect natural thing that we only need to worry about how we can negatively impact versus no, this is something that we need to master. And energy is key to that mastery of natural climate danger. And then it's also key to the mastery of any added man-made climate danger. Stefan, what's your first story?
2: Uh The Arctic drilling is in jeopardy again. So the background of this is that in 2017, President Trump signed an executive order um, opening up or in an an attempt to open up vast areas of the Arctic and Atlantic Ocean for oil and gas leasing. Um, And that would negate a previous executive order by President Obama, who had banned most of that land. And... So now, a recent uh, ruling by a federal judge in Alaska has overturned that uh, executive order by Trump, and uh, this came up because uh, some environmental groups, including Earth Justice, sued uh, over this executive order. And the the judge said um, in the ruling, the wording of President Obama's 2015 and 2016 withdrawals indicates. That he intended them to extend indefinitely, and therefore be revocable only by an act of Congress. So that sounds like a very curious way of how executive <laughs> orders work, yeah. because one president is banning something, and the, the next president is revoking that ban. But it, there seems to be a legal case in that because there's some some there are some laws on the books that apparently. Um, make that argument plausible. So we'll, we'll see how that develops. But so just to see at what's at stake, the Arctic obviously has great potential for oil and gas. Uh, so a, a United States geological survey estimate uh, earlier estimated that over 10% of undiscovered planetary reserves uh, could be located there. That's, that's a lot. That's billions of barrels, of course. And uh, Obviously, oil and gas development is already an important part of the Alaskan economy and therefore is also very popular in in the state of Alaska. Um, And it just shows again that like these activist groups can sort of ruin your life if you you depend on oil and gas development and and you have a job there and, and you live in Alaska and just some outside activists come in and claim that, you know, some salmon or polar bear cannot be put at risk by oil and gas development ever. And I, I find this highly problematic uh, besides the legal questions, you know, which I cannot really comment on because I'm not an expert on that.
1: Well, I, I saw, I was, I was looking at your notes for today and I thought you I haven't mentioned yet your most uh, interesting point, which you said something about, you asked kind of the question, why, is, why are we so particularly focused on Arctic wildlife?
2: yeah yeah so I mean there's we all see this pristine imagery in on TV you know polar bears in the in the ice desert and so on and this seems to play a role because there's no real reason why we shouldn't you know we shouldn't be more concerned about Arctic wildlife compared to desert wildlife or you know Florida wildlife or, or what have you. I, I don't see a real reason why this Arctic circle is this magic border where suddenly the same project couldn't be uh, couldn't take place anymore because of some particular risk that yeah i mean
1: all, all things all things being equal uh, which is not equal in terms of just development difficulty but it would be better if you could do development in a place where there were fewer people and where it's a, less of a nice place to visit but it's, so it's it's mostly that the arctic is not a nice place to visit for just about everybody given their resources uh, but, and that's why it's the, for similar reasons, it's difficult to develop, uh, to de- you know, develop mineral resources there, but yeah, it, just in practice, what we're talking about is we're just talking about, you know, taking some equipment, drilling underground for a while, you know, maybe a few decades, getting some really valuable stuff out of the ground that otherwise is just sitting there doing nothing. And then once you're done with it, you remove the equipment and, and, you know, depending on how you're doing it, if you're doing it on a landmass, which I don't they're usually doing in in the conventional sense. But generally, when you're drilling or even mining on different land masses, we have ways now of making them even nicer than they were before we got there. And so what you're just talking about is is a nice, temporary, pretty small project that allows you to get a, a ton of stuff. And yet we have so much bias toward human impact that we think, oh, no, this is this is the one pure place on Earth. And so pure means Non-human. So once again, what I call human racism rears its ugly head—the belief that anything that humans create or impact is thereby bad, and then everything that that um, the rest of nature creates or impacts is good. Don, what's your next story?
0: So this is an update on what's been happening in Venezuela. Um, the lights have generally gone back on from their blackouts a few weeks back, but experts are predicting that. Uh, this is kind of a temporary thing and that what we'll expect to see because they haven't fixed the underlying problems is that um, blackouts are going to increase in number and length absent billions of dollars of investment, which I mean, to put it mildly, Venezuela is not rolling in (laughs) disposable cash right now.
1: Well, does that do any of you want to invest some of your CIP income in Venezuelan potential?
0: Well, I'm sure you could get a good uh, nominal return.
1: Well, actually, this this actually just occurred to me. Why doesn't they, who would invest in green New Deal projects? Like, if they took them, they asked you know these different kinds of financiers. Okay, ocasio Cortez has some bright ideas about energy. Are you willing to invest in them? I wonder what the responses would be.
0: Well, and even though the uh, you know the powers back on, the current solution to this problem has been power rationing. So it's shortening the workday, closing schools. So it's not as if like they've returned to livability. And in fact, people are still struggling to get their hands on clean water and food. And I mean, it's really a tragic situation situation there. But one industry that's been particularly hard hit has been Venezuela's oil industry. And of course, oil was the central industry in Venezuela and made it one of the wealthier countries in that area for many years. And oil production has dropped by half during the blackouts, and that has caused real long-term damage. So uh, for example, near, and I I might pronounce this wrong, but uh, Orinoco Basin, where they get most of their oil, a heavy tar-like oil, it's clogged up pipelines and tanks because the heating system lost power. And cleaning that up and fixing it could take months. And so I think one lesson of many here is just that uh, energy is vital to producing energy. And this touches on something that you raised initially about solar and wind, Alex, which is that. Like we, we don't always appreciate that fact. So we'll talk about the price of solar and wind and batteries and just project that, oh, well, if we got rid of fossil fuels, w- you know, those prices are only going to go down. But to whatever extent those are affordable, it's only because they're built with affordable, reliable energy. And so Venezuela does not have affordable, reliable energy right now. And as a result, its energy gold mine has turned into basically, uh, you know, I don't know what's a eloquent opposite of a gold mine. An abandoned former gold mine, something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's gold mine. Gold mine can be negative if it's not used uh, properly, or when when it's not used properly and then it's been uh, exhausted. But and that's not even a bad analogy because that's that's what happened here. I mean, in effect, it's exhausted. It's not theoretically exhausted, but it's in some ways, practically exhausted because they're not using, they're not taking the actions necessary to actually gain value from the hydrocarbon. And then in general, they're just not taking actions necessary to improve their lives. And so they're they're living in many ways with nature, which is including with dirty water, which is not a pleasant thing. Stefan, what's your next story?
2: I want to talk about the Keystone XL project, which is uh, still alive. <laughs> and this is Another uh, presidential executive order by President Trump, um, which he um, signed in late March. And this is a a sort of circumventing gimmick against the court ruling against the previous State Department uh, permission for the Keystone XL pipeline project. So the original proposal for this pipeline went down in 2008 so it's now approaching 11 years and counting and obviously the Obama administration previously rejected the um, project mainly on climate impact grounds and uh, this pipeline is particularly important for Canada because Canadian oil producers uh, specifically from the oil sands in Alberta uh, are desperate to find new pipeline capacities, uh, capacities. so They need to reach U.S. refineries with the heavy crude oil. And the Keystone XL is an expansion of the Keystone pipeline, uh, which has insufficient capacity to bring all the available oil down there to the U.S. refineries. And uh, now TransCanada is a developer of this pipeline project, and they have seen uh, the project cost increase by several billion. So they are now saying something about $8 billion from previously $5 billion of project costs. And this is a similar case, I think, to what happened to nuclear reactor building in America where just the delays and the regulatory framework forced up the capital investment costs. So at some point it didn't make sense to expand on the, on the reactors. And this is apparently the strategy, the climate activists who uh, in particular don't like the Canadian oil sand crude, uh, are using here to to prevent these kind of projects.
1: It's always striking to look at the history of costs with this kind of thing and, and timetables. I forget if it's ninety days or or one hundred eighty days, but the first one of the first major pipelines, which is somewhere around one hundred twenty miles, it's called the Tidewater Pipeline in the United States. This thing took, let's say, six months to build. And think about how long it takes to build pipelines now. And I was somebody mentioned yesterday to me that the Empire State Building was built in something like 54 weeks and imagine building something like that today and i forget how long the hoover dam took but what you see is that even though technology and knowledge have advanced dramatically build times for things have increased dramatically whereas you'd expect them to decrease and that that points to there's a very anti-building Mentality in the world, including various ideas such as anti-hydrocarbon, you shouldn't build uh, pipelines. Those kinds of ideas lead to just the dramatic slowing of progress, and that then this is bad because this this not only it not only affects every project negatively, but it affects the funding of projects. Because if somebody sees the example of Keystone XL, how likely are they going to be to fund a pipeline? And then what's that going to mean for future progress? So the it's, it's really important that we extol building as a culture and that we denigrate blocking, except in cases where you're, there are real builders involved, people who support building, but then there's some very specific good reason to stop some particular type of building because it's endangering people. But if we're talking about just wanting to block everything, this kind of keep it in the ground, don't move it anywhere policy, that is just, that is contemptible and really needs to be demonized in the culture. Don, what's your next story?
0: So wind partisans have really pointed to Texas often as an example of wind success. And that's because Texas produces more wind than any other U.S. state. And uh, by one estimate, it supplied about 15% of the state's total electricity in 2017. But I think if you look closer at it, Texas actually reveals the real problems with depending on unreliables. And so not just the cost problem, but also the reliability of the grid. And so um, a, a lot of this I'm taking from a Count on Coal Council report, which uh, there obviously have vested interests, but as far as I know, the the facts that I uh, am aware of, this checks out. But if anybody objects to any of them, let us know. Um, but they point out that in February, there was an increase in heating demand because of cooler weather. And there were uh, calmer winds than expected. And so there was 20% less power than was expected coming from the wind turbines. And as a result, spot electricity prices, which are just like the short-term wholesale price of electricity in Northern Texas, went up by 700%. And the, the bigger concern that's going on here is that the reserve margin of uh, power in Texas is very thin. So that's the excess supply of energy that's available to maintain the grid if you have um, you know, an unexpected increase in demand. And that's down to 7.4%, which is half of their target. And when it was even higher than that, the chairwoman of the state's Public Utility Commission was calling the situation very scary because the smaller your reserve margin, the more likely you're going to face brownouts and blackouts and price spikes. And um, I think that the an underlying factor that's really played a key role in creating this situation is that Texas has just closed down a bunch of coal in recent years. About twenty percent of their coal fleet was sh- uh, shut down. Uh, in fact, I think a little bit more than that as of this year. And so their their grid is in an increasingly precarious position, and that's not something that you would see if you just looked at prices alone. And I think that's something that we should always be aware of. Is, and one of the things we've been working at at CIP is, well, how do you measure this issue of how resilient is the grid versus how precarious is it? How How at risk are we of facing blackouts and brownouts? Because People have not really come up with a good way to measure this, but if you're concerned about energy, I mean, this is like one of the most, if not the most important factors about electricity that we'd be concerned about.
1: In general, as an advancing society, we would want our reserve margin to go up. I mean, unless you just had some, I don't know, some incredible mitigating technology like, okay, you could exactly predict everything or everything was that much more reliable, but in general, yeah, we'd, we want a lot more reserve margin, in particular because we are more and more of an electrified society, where so much of our productivity depends on electricity. So to just be, to just be playing around and engaging in these experiments and just seeing how high, how hard we can push before we get total blackout, and then we get these increases in in the you know the temporary the spot prices. What is the end game here? A, this is a, this is a, this, I agree with very scary because just we depend so much on this amazing grid that we've created that depends on abundant, reliable electricity. And we are just playing, I don't know, playing with fire isn't the right uh, exact expression, but we are, we are playing with our power supply. One note I was that's related to this. I was reading the announcement of the Green uh Green Real Deal by Matt Getz or Gates, I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. And he, he made some decent points, actually, but but the, the thing that was just crazy to me was he just talked about our electric grid as some some organization gave it, I think, a D plus. And he says, Yeah, it's a D plus. And the main reason he gave for it being a D plus was that it's not good at accommodating unreliable energy. And I was just thinking what, what, and and then he talked about a world where when we, you know, we want everyone to be able to generate unreliable energy and for it to work out. And I'm just thinking like, what, what, what universe are you living in? Like, how do you imagine this magic grid working where it makes sense to develop Unreliable electricity. Like, how is that? What is, what isn't that backwards? And how do you expect that to work? There's just this so much that's built into this idea of, oh, it's going to be a smart grid, but, but what can you do? I mean, you can forcibly, you can forcibly prevent people from getting as much electricity as they want. That's one thing you can do. And then you can try to store a bunch of it. That's another thing you do, which is incredibly expensive and not at all scalable. And then you can do all sorts of other. Uh, slightly lesser manipulations of people where you tell them, oh, try to do this at this time and try to do this. I mean, you can basically make their lives a lot less convenient. And then the the degree of that will change from extremely inconvenient, that is, you're going to die from overheating because you can't get enough electricity for air conditioning uh, or enough electricity for uh, heating, in the winter, you know, anything from that to just, oh, you have to plug in some appliance or unplug it at this particular type of time of day. So you're just wa- then wasting your life, just having all of these different kinds of, of practices. And I just think in in what other field would we think, oh, yeah, we need to modernize our economy so that people who don't want to go to work on time can be a lot more productive. So people, people, you know, drunk people, uh, alcoholics who only want to go to work a third of the time and don't want to show up. We need a modern economy. We need a modern economy so that they can accommodate renewable workers. You just think, no, this is no. The workers we need better and better workers. We need more reliable workers. We we don't need uh, a whole. We don't need to encourage unreliability and then try to accommodate it in some sort of magical way because the thing that we demand in terms of our consumption of values is reliability. That's a big aspect of quality. So if we demand reliability in terms of the energy we're consuming, then we need more reliability on the part of the energy that we are producing. Stefan, what's your next story?
2: Household level recycling in America is declining. And uh, the reason for this is that China and other countries who have so far received a lot of shipments from America uh, with uh, recycling waste. Uh, have stopped doing that Uh, and the complaint is that there's too much uh, trash in the mix that cannot actually be recycled which you know drives up cost and that drives up the cost for the municipalities and and the local companies to take in the recycle uh, recycling waste and uh, more and more of it ends up in landfills and being incinerated and so a lot of people right now in America are sorting their trash, uh, you know, in the firm belief that this will end up as new material somewhere and it will actually be just going to landfills and incinerated. And uh, so it shows that household level recycling is actually a costly endeavor and it doesn't really work in America with, uh, you know, American price levels and wages. And so far, uh, this has been this reality has been dodged by shipping things overseas. Uh, so in my view, a lot of the economics of household level recycling have always been questionable. So it's clear that you know metals and maybe some other materials can be recycled and should be recycled, and it makes sense. And you know if you're, you have a lot of scrap metal, uh, you, can, you can actually sell that somewhere. Uh, But for most of that material, it's just you have to pay to get rid of it, right? So this gives you a sort of market indicator that the material is actually not worth recycling. And it seems like, especially with household waste, it's mostly a, a symbolic gesture. So politicians and, you know, some activists like it a lot. And the companies obviously like that private citizens work for free for them to pre-sort the trash, but uh, I, I think the basic economies just don't uh, bear it out, and the market indicates that and if anything, I don't think we should waste our lifetime manually you know sorting through trash. We should use you know machines to do it, and I, I think there's there's a lot of technology available that uh, you know the the waste handling companies have to invest in to actually automate all of this because it's like when i lose only a couple of hours a year in in sorting through trash that's still like slave work that i'm i'm doing for the for the waste handling and i would i would prefer to you know maybe pay a couple of bucks more for for the waste handling
1: yeah or they i mean maybe they could they could pay people in different ways if it's if it's actually <laughs> valuable. One point that I really like that Pierre de Rocher, our our good friend, has made, and he made on a much earlier episode of Power Hour, is just that recycling in its economic form is is mostly the province of large-scale industry. Because what industry does is it's dealing with large amounts of raw materials, and then it processes them into primary products and byproducts. But it's dealing with such volumes with such awareness that then the byproducts can themselves become very very valuable products. As Pierre, Pierre would say, I think they turn waste into wealth. So recycling, what we think of as recycling, is usually just uh, almost an insult to it, where we just think, oh, I'm doing this thing, and I'm you know, I'm putting this in this bin and this in that bin, and then it's actually just going to China, except now China's rejecting it, so it's just going into a landfill. No, but... but Real recycling is a really impressive thing. And Pierre talks about, well, the oil industry was really the pioneer in recycling. You think about what they did, half the barrel of oil or so used to just be waste and dumped in a lake or something like that. And they were able to recycle it into all sorts of productive processes where now every little aspect of the barrel is used. It's like people talk about the Native Americans or Indians just making use of every part of the buffalo. And that's really what the oil industry has done with every little aspect of a barrel of oil. So that's that's a really impressive thing. So the the concept of recycling both needs to be it needs to be denigrated when it's inefficient, but when it's efficient, it should it's a great thing and it should be recognized that industry is by far the champion of recycling and not the recycling industry, which is often a racket, but just the actual recycling of regular industry. So that benefits us in all kinds of different ways. Okay, that was three stories from each of you, and then there was my little segment at the beginning, so I think that is good for today. Uh, as always, if any listeners have questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, they can email us. I am at alex at net. Don is at don at net. Stefan is at s-t-e-f-f-e-n at dot net you get on our newsletter easiest site to go to is actually alexepsteinlist.com alexepsteinlist.com you'll get a weekly email as well as access to our energy clarity course which many people have raved about and really enjoy um, also if you are interested in a great speaker for your high level event email don at don at industrialprogress.net and if you are an organization that is dealing with high stakes messaging challenges and you might like to use our consulting services, you can email me at alex at industrialprogress.net, subject consulting to learn more. All right. That is it for this week. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.